Last year, Russell Moore, a former leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a book called Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America. And the reason for the book, he told NPR Radio, was the result of having multiple pastors tell him that they had preached on the Sermon on the Mount and then had someone after the service come up to them and say, where in the world did you get those liberal talking points? And Moore says what was alarming to him was that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm quoting scripture, this is Jesus Christ, they would not respond with, I apologize, but the response would be, well, yeah, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. And Moore says, when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus are seen as subversive or are seen as unworkable, then we are in a crisis. This is the beginning of a one-year, 52-session study on the Sermon on the Mount. Together, we're going to spend an entire year on the mountaintop with Jesus to discuss this sermon of His. It's a long journey, but we're going to take it step by step, and we're going to take it thoughtfully, we're going to unpack it slowly, we're going to prayerfully consider each of the things Jesus has to say in this important sermon. And if we take it seriously, it'll change our faith. So come join me on the mountaintop as we sit at the feet of the master and learn from him what it looks like to live as a participant in the community of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the central thesis of the faith of Jesus. It is the longest recorded sermon by Jesus, the most comprehensive explanation of what it means, of what it looks like to be a follower of God. The ancient theologian St. Augustine called it a perfect standard of the Christian life. Oswald Chambers, a theologian of a few centuries ago, said that it was a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. And modern scholar N.T. Wright says that this passage calls and challenges us to a life of radical discipleship. The Sermon on the Mount encapsulates what it means to live in the upside-down kingdom of God. It is the constitution of God's community. Now we'll begin in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And, and we read that and we're like, cool, okay, he's on a mountain. Jesus is teaching from a mountain that's on a hillside. Uh, maybe it was the acoustics. He could kind of project over the people. Uh, maybe it was just a better temperature. It was cooler than it was down in the valley. Or maybe Jesus yodeled the sermon. We don't know. Um, but Jesus, all the times that Jesus taught, this is the only time that we're told he taught from a mountainside. And I think that's important. It's the only case we have of him teaching from mountain. Symbolically, when Jesus goes up the mountain to preach this new covenant ethic, he's setting himself up in comparison, in contrast to Moses. Because when Moses received the Old Testament law, he does so on a mountain, on Mount Sinai. Moses went up to the mountain of God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. So the people had received the old covenant from Moses on a mountaintop. And now this new covenant from Jesus would come the same way. So Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 is a record of Jesus' teaching from the new law 
as the new Moses to the new people of God. Jesus does not replace Moses, but he fulfills Moses' purpose. Rather than establish a limited physical kingdom called Israel, Jesus comes to establish an expansive spiritual kingdom called the kingdom of God. And this is a radical theology. A radical theology. Here is a man at very nearly the beginning of his ministry claiming to be a man like Moses, claiming that his words were the new covenant, claiming to be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and God. The Sermon on the Mount is the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. It relates to us the core ethical behaviors and actions of the New Covenant. It lays out precisely for us the kind of religious rituals and ethical codes that we are to fulfill as people of God. And yet a lot of times I find we don't want to move on. Now, I'm not saying that we get rid of the Ten Commandments entirely. I'm saying that we have to interpret them and apply them in light of the Sermon on the Mount. The law finds its fulfillment in Jesus, who calls us to a kingdom ethic that stretches the law of Moses to a point where we can understand the law of God. Kurt Vonnegut, the American author who is by no means a Christian, offers this insightful comment on our application of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses. That's not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. There's a radical change from the old covenant to the new, from the law to grace, from Moses to Jesus. And Vonnegut's right. We often miss it. The old covenant is easier. It's more rigid. The new covenant is messy and complex. And, and some might say an unrealistic ideal. But this was the message that consumed the ministry of Jesus. When you look at the structure of the Gospel of Matthew, it becomes clear that Matthew offers this sermon of Jesus as the prototypical sermon of Jesus' ministry. The end of Matthew chapter 4 offers a summary statement of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. It says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The chapter ends with Matthew saying that this ministry drew crowds from all over the nation, making Jesus a very popular healer and teacher. And one way to restate that verse would be to say that Jesus made it his ministry to preach the coming kingdom of God, to teach the way of the kingdom, and to demonstrate the power and the purpose of the kingdom by healing the sick. It's preaching, caring for the soul, teaching, caring for the mind, and healing, caring for the body. The end of Matthew 9 gives us very nearly the exact same sentiment. <clears throat> Jesus continued going around to all the towns and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. In ancient times, 
these sorts of summary statements were intended to mark chapters to move the narrative along, particularly if it's an oral storytelling culture that someone is reading this to a group of people. And that's exactly what it does here. Matthew chapters 5 through 9 is meant to give us an example of the preaching, teaching, healing ministry of Jesus. This is what Jesus did for three years. And that means that the Sermon on the Mount is exceptional in that it was written down and it was handed down to us, but it is not exceptional in that it was not a one-time teaching of Jesus. This is the type of teaching that consumed the ministry of Jesus. Matthew is offering up this sermon as a prototypical example of what Jesus taught always and what he did always. Chapters 5 through 7 show us his typical teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 8 through 9 show us his typical healing. So what it appears here is that we have this five-chapter unit designed by Matthew to present us first with some typical teaching of the Lord concerning the way of the kingdom, and then second with some typical healings and miracles to just demonstrate the power of that kingdom. And then we get to Matthew chapter 10, and it's a record of him commissioning the disciples to do the exact same thing that he had been doing. Matthew chapter 10 begins by saying, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to do all the things that he had already been doing. The Sermon on the Mount is an active call to do and to obey. It's not a system of beliefs, it's a system of actions. James would write that faith without works is dead. And he gets this from Jesus, who in his greatest sermon does not outline for us a theology, but a mission. Based on this sermon, the early church went out and changed the world. Jesus finishes his message in Matthew 7. It's followed by two chapters of his healing ministry in 8 and 9, and then Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, Jesus commissions his disciples. And it's one of those things that we often overlook. The disciples were to have their own ministries, not just after the lifetime of Jesus, but during. Jesus says, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In other words, do the Sermon on the Mount. Put it into action. Proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Prove it with the power of the Spirit I'm giving you. Robin Myers says this. She says, consider this. There is not a single word in the Sermon on the Mount about what to believe. Only words about what to do. It is a behavioral manifesto, not a propositional one. The Sermon is a mandate to go. It teaches us to create the kingdom of God in the middle of this empire of men. When Jesus said these things, he was creating a kingdom ethic that was to be the center of life for all believers. And that life is going to look countercultural. Stanley Hauerwas puts it this way, the basis for the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount is not what works, but rather the way God is. And we need to pause and reflect on that a moment. The basis for the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount is not what works, 
but rather the way God is. So from a secular standpoint, the morals of the mountaintop are nonsensical. From an evolutionary view, they are disadvantageous. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new system of rules to follow, but it's a new way of life in the Spirit. If God's Spirit indwells you, you must live like it. If God directs your actions, He must direct your actions. Cheek turning is not advocated as what works. It usually doesn't. But advocated because of the way God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. This is not a stratagem for getting what we want. But the only manner of life available now that in Jesus we have seen what God wants. We seek reconciliation with the neighbor, not because we feel so much better afterward, but because reconciliation is what God is doing in the world through Christ. The upside-down kingdom of God tells us explicitly to do things that will very likely not gain us earthly victory. They tell us to live the life of Jesus and his earthly life ended on a cross. We do not follow these moral teachings because they are easy or because they are even beneficial, but because they are right. And as we'll see, these actions turn our lives into a peaceful, nonviolent protest against the systems, the principalities, the powers of this world. The reconciliation of God continues through the Holy Spirit and thus through you and me in whom that Spirit is indwelt. So as we spend this year on the mountaintop, let's remember that it's not just about sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's about being the hands and feet of Jesus as well and living as part of this kingdom community.